0: Everybody, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lees with another exciting episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast brought to you the entire month of December by Lead 411 Vidyard, and Gong.io. So please be sure to check those out. And we're super excited to have someone here. And no, we're not really trying to make them be a sponsor, but if you wanted to bring it up, of course, we wouldn't say no. Um, We have Adam Schoenfeld, of Drift, who is the VP. And I need to get a clarification. Strategy and sales products. What does that mean, Adam? And thank you for coming on. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, not in sales, but I'm responsible for the part of our product where we where we serve sales end users. Um, so if you think of Drift, right, serves marketers and sellers. And uh, the part of the product that I'm responsible for is the, the end user tools. Um, our video, our meeting booking tool, um, the live chat. So those are the things that I spend my time on. Then the strategy part is um, I have the privilege of working with our leadership team to kind of answer some of the big questions about vision and strategy and A lot of it, honestly, is articulating those things to the company. It's like eighty percent making choice or eighty percent articulating, twenty percent making choices. So um, that's the kind of two. I'm
0: going to I'm going to push here. Articulate the value. Let's say I'm a sales rep, or I'm the VP of sales, or a director of sales. Tell me what that means.
1: Well, I, I was speaking specifically on like our strategy, like when we make choices about what segments we want to go after and the kinds of products we want to build and what's our like master plan for getting larger, so explaining do do it is a lot of the work. Yeah, so,
0: so, yeah, is there a particular process? Do you guys go through some kind of SWOT analysis? Do you go through customer discussion? Like how do you guys without giving away all the secret sauce, right?
1: Yeah. How, no, do, how do you guys
0: determine a good strategy? Cause you guys are hyper growth, right? And, it's super important that that strategy
1: work. It's true and it's changing constantly. Um, so we do a quarterly cadence where we're kind of refreshing our product strategy and um, we kind of roll that out to the product organization. It shows up in all of our OKRs, our goal setting. Um, a couple of frameworks that we've really liked more recently, we really the, um, the the playing to win framework uh, there's a book playing to win and uh, it goes through this cascade of questions that you basically try to answer. Like what's the winning aspiration? Where do you want to play? How do you want to win? And what must be true? We found that really helps frame it. And then we've recently gotten really into the, have you ever read Elon Musk's master plan for Tesla?
0: No, I have not.
1: He's got I'm this just really crisp, like bulleted point. Like this is the master plan, like 10 or 20 year horizon. So we've tried to distill down some of that. Uh, in in our strategy as well. You might hear my kids screaming in the background, by the way. right? We all have them.
0: Um, So let me ask you, this is always the fun question we'll ask early. What strategy mistakes have you guys made so that you could, you know, and and I don't mean to like call out drift. I'm I'm trying to say, what kind of things did you make and what did it teach you in your strategic planning so that others can learn from that perspective?
1: Hmm. It's, you know, we've, we, I think we made the mistake of purely following the demand at some points in our life cycle. Right. And there was a lot of energy around conversational marketing and the category and a lot of different types of companies that wanted this. And I think what we've done more recently is try to focus on like, who are we best for and then orient ourselves toward those customers. Um, which I think happens naturally, like in these companies, cause you come out to market and you have some problem you're going to solve. And then you're like, Whoa, people want to buy this. And in our case, we were fortunate because there was a big groundswell of demand and we, you know, captured that. But I think we then started to realize, Oh, we need to have, you know, different strategies for different segments. Um, we realized that we probably belong a little bit more upmarket toward enterprise than where we had started. And so we've made that move, I think over the last year, 18 months, um, that's the that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the actual content of the strategy. We could dig, dig into the process more too. I'm happy to to riff on that.
2: Well, I actually do want to ask a little bit about the the process. And I want to ask from a the sales leadership kind of perspective. So, I'm a sales leader, my reps are having conversations all day long. They're giving me feedback that they get from prospects and prospective buyers that's like hey, you really need to build this or I can't purchase you guys until you have this. You're missing this particular thing. And then I take that presumably at a company like Drift to somebody like you who's in charge of sales products and strategy that goes into some queue and then priorities shift and change. And like q one goes by two, three, and my team is still begging me for, you know, this particular feature or, or, or new part of the product. Like, how does a VP of sales best communicate to you the needs and priorities of their team to get that ask to stick and to not get knocked down the totem pole when everybody else in the work has a, you know, an ask as well. Hopefully. Yeah. I-
1: it's a great question. Okay. It's a great question. Right. Cause everybody has a different yeah. like pet feature. Every, Every customer does. You have all this like recency bias of you just had this one deal and they needed this one feature and it didn't close. And therefore, that's the most important thing in the world. And if we did that, then we would 5X our growth next month. And uh, I think the best conversations that we have with the sales leaders, it's uh, on the product side usually starts with them surfacing problems. Right. And versus like, I need this feature, I, I need this X thing to try to articulate like, what's the The problems that the customer has and where are we not solving those problems? I think those those tend to lead to the best discussions where we can then kind of hone in and do the, the research. And of course, when they can map in specific examples and dollars and show us the gong recordings to go listen to, that really helps the product team, like the PMs and the product leaders, like understand it from their perspective.
2: And then if you're working with somebody like me, what, what, are, what are you hoping for in the, in the relationship? Like, how often should I go bang the drum and be like, hey, Adam, I still need this problem fixed, like, before I irritate the shit out of you, right? Which yeah. you're not trying to do, but it's like, the squeaky wheel gets the grease a little bit, right? Like, what does that cadence or communication style look like?
1: For me, I'm happy to have it, you know, always and often. I don't, I don't get overwhelmed by people repeating their asks or having conviction and, and saying it. And I think transparency on that is good. And I'm willing to say like, no, we're not focused on that and here's why or you know, have a discussion about it. Um, so I think our product leadership, it's we, we like getting that. Um, we like having those discussions and, and those debates. And look, like there's this realization I've had, which is we just, as a product leader, you're never gonna have the context and the emotion and the feeling Of being on the front lines like you can listen to the calls you can go for ride-alongs you can do all these things to try to you know simulate it simulate it but you can't be a rep or an am with a book of business and feel the pain of not hitting your number and feel the pain of like losing to a competitor and so i think the more of that that we can get and the more that we can feel it the the better off we'll be as a company
0: does that mean that your compensation model is wrong then if you're not feeling that pain, you're not being compensated for that. And, and should you be, I'm not saying you need to be, right? Like I'm not trying to be, oh, well then, you know, you, you shouldn't get compensated if we lose deals. But is that a part of the equation?
1: I think it, it, it's a good point. Um, I don't know, I'm not an expert on comp and incentives. Um, for me, like that doesn't necessarily motivate me in, in the same way as like seeing and feeling the customers have success. So that might seem a little weird to, you know, salespeople that are listening and thinking about like comp, but I don't know. I think that um, it's, I don't I don't know what the right answer is on that, on comp what, and how to tie it together.
0: But I think this is important too. If, if Scott's your VP of sales, right? Cause he, you know, his motivation is, you know he's gotta hit the number, right? What does motivate you so that Scott can help you achieve your motivation, right? Like that's where, to me, that's where partnerships get really good is when Scott or the VP of sales understands how you're, not how you're compensated, but what motivates you and the same with marketing and the same with engineering, then it becomes that teamwork, right? Rather than everybody in sales, just banging the drum of, you know, fuck you, you know, we're, we're not hitting the number. So go build this.
1: Yeah. Um, I think if we can all focus on like the long-term of where the company's trying to go, that helps, right? And- But what, but
0: what motivates Adam? I wanna know what-
1: uh, what motivates you, me personally? Yeah,
0: yeah, what motivates a guy like you?
1: A guy like me? Well, I can only speak for me, not guys like me, but for me, it's- uh,
0: And I should say men, women, and everybody, I be, <laughs> you know, less Gen X, sorry, everybody. But Go ahead, sorry, Adam.
1: I think for me, um, I feel like I get motivated by kind of, the craft and so i want the i want to do high quality work that is appreciated by the customer and the most satisfying thing for me is to see it lock into gear and to see the customer have success and to see them use the thing that we as we thought it could or should be used to achieve some goal for them and make their lives better so that's what gets me excited and if i can see that playing forward over the long term then that's super motivated for me.
0: Can you measure can you measure that? No. Do you,
1: I cannot but, personally measure that. I don't know how to measure that.
0: But would it be renewal rates? Would it be feature adoption? Could you could you you know, is that the kind of stuff, or do you just need to are you the kind of person who's like, hey, look, I want to have conversations you know twice a week with the customer just so I can understand if we're doing it right?
1: I mean, I think renewal rates and adoption, all that help, and we have OKRs around all that stuff. But if you're asking what motivates me personally, um, it's none of those KPIs, right? It's it's quality. It's it's an abstract idea of quality, and like you, this might be surprising. I, I'm just not a very uh, results centric person in how I make decisions. Um, I make decisions based more on the process and what i and how i'm going to be learning and so that that's just a personal thing for me and i think the kpis are important and helpful operationally but if you're thinking of motivation that's not what like gets me to jump out of bed in the morning
2: i'm still fo- i'm still focused on a couple minutes ago richard when when adam said i would not bother him by asking him over and over and over to get something we would get along swimmingly adam because richard knows I have absolutely no shame. I'll just keep asking over and over and over. And if I get told no, I'll, the next time I figure out a different way to explain it, and I, here I come again. So that's uh, that's pretty cool to, to hear. I want to go way back to the beginning. One of the first things you said when we started was, you're not in sales. I'm going to call bullshit on that. And here's why. And it's pretty obvious. Like, You founded three companies, exited at least one of them, You've been selling for a very long time, Adam, for over a decade, at the very least, selling your idea, selling your dream and vision to employees that you had, you sold your company to, to Drift. How is it that you don't identify as a seller still?
1: Good question. I'm happy to change my mind on that. I'm happy to self-identify as a seller. I, 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 it's, it's funny because I, I love sales and I consider myself a student of sales, um, I've, I've certainly, I guess what I, what I'm saying is I've never had a quota. I've never been, I've never had a book of business. I've I've never had the, I've never had a lot of the um, hard dynamics that define what an actual sales rep has to have uh, and go through. So, but have I had to sell? Yeah. My whole life I've been selling. And when you, I've started a company that grew to 150 employees, every one of those recruits was a sales process. We were, I've raised, tens of millions of dollars in venture capital that's selling i've i've sold deals i've come on deals so yeah,
2: yeah so so yeah i guess that's that's the difference but i think it's an important point to and it's reason why i'm kind of picking on you about it it's like you've been doing sales at a different level that is i don't even know arguably significantly harder right raising millions of dollars recruiting a company to the size of 150 people like that's absolutely a sales process. Okay, maybe you never sent 50 emails and cold called a hundred people every single day with a sales manager breathing over your neck to hit your quota. But you've been but you've been selling, right? And you've been selling effectively for a really long time. So I, I always find it interesting that, you know, founders or in your case now, you know, VP of strategy or whatever, like you don't identify. As a seller, and so many people, I think, regardless of role, don't identify as a seller, but actually have been doing some foundational selling activities for a really long time. So,
1: yeah, it is interesting. Um, but I, I mean, we, we all we all sell to some extent, right? Every day in, at, yeah. at home, I'm selling my kids all the time, too. By the way, oh, yeah. and that's the hardest seller. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Like, like how am I gonna convince you to brush your teeth and be ready to go to school right. on time?
2: Yes, yeah, so that's an every, every single day, multiple times a day sale. I, I don't know how old your kids are, but my I'm about to have a teenager starting tomorrow uh, and I am still having that conversation and that sale every single night. So,
0: I like I was gonna say, that's it's like, the it, I don't even think it's a selling, it's like the hardest customer success job ever. <laughs> you gotta get them to buy it. <laughs> like yeah, raising kids is no longer sales, it's customer success. <laughs> um, so, but I have a question when you went, like, like, let's go back to Siprock, right? When you started that company, didn't you have to close the original deals? Like the first 10, the first 15, or did you have a co-founder who was like, you were the strategy guy, the idea guy. And this co-founder was the, was the, you know, was the sales leader.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was the, the sales team of one reported to me. Right. So I was functionally running sales but on the day I basically I I brought in a a sale an AE right out of the gate Um, Katie Ferris who's incredible and I'd worked with before so I just knew that it was a product that needed to be sold Um, so in those early first three or four months I think I was on every discovery call with her and every every call and then I was kind of playing the role of sales leader slash product marketer slash, you know, like backfilling the holes and also being the product manager of like, okay, here's what I, we're hearing. We have to translate that to what we build. Um, so I didn't have that phase of actually being the AE. In my previous company, I did where I had like the lead list and I closed our first 50 customers by hand myself.
0: I have a question because I see this a lot and particularly with, with tech or tech companies. Founder comes in, they close the first couple of deals or whatever, they go get an AE or they bring in a VP of sales. And then they can't let go of the sales process, right? Mm. They want to micromanage that new VP of sales or you bring in a VP of sales. And after 18 months, you think, you know, as much about selling as the, the head of sales.
2: Wait, That never happens, Richard. <laughs> I know.
0: I know. Present company excluded. Of course. Is it, is it just innate in you to be like, Oh my God, thank God someone's here to take care of it. Or how did you learn to let go?
1: Well, in my, in my Seconds. my first startup was a complete failure, but my second startup, I closed the first 50 deals myself and I, but I knew that I wasn't the best like day-to-day AE. So I I didn't let go so easily in that case, but once the early reps had my trust and the first director of sales that we hired had trust, then I was able to let go. In Siftrock, it was a little bit different because Katie and I had worked together for so long that, that I already had trust that I could... I could like hand off the, the selling motion to her. So how did you get
0: that trust though? Where does, cause I think that's the part that particularly tech founders, right? And I'm thinking yeah. about the engineers who come up with these amazing products and tools and services and you know, it's their baby, right? And, and I get it, but you said the keyword trust. What yeah. does it look like for you to trust a sales or a sales leader?
1: If I see them operate and see that they can do it better than I could. Which totally happened with Katie. It could be, it over could
2: be uh, a low bar in some cases, not necessarily for you, Adam, but in other cases, it could be a yeah. low bar. Is is there a different benchmark other than they can do it better than me?
1: Well, I mean, that's all I knew. Like when I was first starting coming, all I knew is like how I sold it, and so I don't know having some humility about it and saying like I don't think I'm the best salesperson on earth. Yeah, like I closed these customers, but recognizing when somebody was taking it to the next level was a big like point in my head where it locked in and said, Oh, Hey, I don't need to like be on every call. Um, but I, I love being in the deals and, uh, on the calls and part of it. So, uh, I think I, I stayed close to it and in the, in my startups for quite a while, but once I saw that they were able to, bring something different or better than, you know, what just the founder trying to make it work was that that worked for me.
2: I have, I have a, um, I have a cultural question that I don't think we've ever talked about on this show, actually, Richard. And, And that is post acquisition. How do you integrate your company into an existing company and maintain your culture Or is that even part of the strategy or how do you become drifters as opposed to company that you were before? Can you talk about that? Like, let's say there's employees out there listening, or maybe there's founders out there listening who are are about to go through this or thinking through that. Like, what is the rubric? What is the playbook for, you know, how to make that happen?
1: It's hard. I think it's hard. I I think we were, we thought about it a lot before we actually signed the deal. So, uh, spent a lot of time like understanding what are the leadership principles and what's the culture like, and had been a customer of Drift and had known people at Drift. So, we felt like we had a sense for the culture, and it was like wasn't so far off that we thought it was going to be this complete remapping of you know how we how we operate. And, and what are you looking
0: for it? though? Like that's this is a great question. I'm glad Scott asked it because I don't think we have. How do you measure that? I mean, again, you know, I know you're not looking at KPIs, but like, how do you sort of step back and go, wait a minute, how do we make sure our teams are integrated well culturally, or here's our values. I want to make sure they align with, with David and Drift's values.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think being, we were first reflecting on what are our values? What are the things that we like about Siftrock, And then asking them, like when we sat down, it's like asking them about the company values, asking other people talking to what are those values?
0: Like, like get specific. Like if you can remember, like, what were those values that you asked in that conversation or in the conversations?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, so like Drift's value, you know, everybody has a value usually about customer centricity. Ours is put the customer at the center of everything you do. So it's like, We click down on that what's the process how do you build features um how do you like bring this top of mind for everybody in the company like not just what is the value what's the thing you write on the wall but how does it actually show up and did it seem real i think that's what we were trying to assess um you know another drift value is build be a curious learning machine and that's one that was important for us we like continual learning and growth and So click down on that and start to ask about what are the specific things. And we have this book club and we have these podcasts and there's like these investments in mentorship and just trying to test, like do the way that the values actually get implemented, actually map what's on the website or what's written on the wall. Um, That was the the exercise that we went through. Now you, you do
2: that for yourself initially and, and you get some level of comfort with the, the acquirer that this is going to be a good move. How do you, um, pass on your, you know, sense of calm and this is the right thing down to your team, right? Who, you know, like, let's say a sell, a seller who's on the, the phones every day and is like, oh my God, I'm about to go work for such and such company. Everything's going to be different. They're going to fire me, blah, 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 blah. Like, how do, how do you do, or do you even try to, you know, bring that sense of hey this is a good move and here's why or do you just say out oh, the hell with it it's the right thing for for me and the company and hopefully people stick around and get it i no, i have no idea i'm asking genuinely curious
1: yeah i think i definitely tr- we tried and uh it wasn't just a to hell with it um in our case we had a really small tight team um it was only five people at the At the point of acquisition and we were just for context we were a bootstrapped profitable business and so you know very much this feeling of like we're this little unit um you know very tight-knit um so we spent a lot of time talking about it we were we were very transparent that the discussion was going on it wasn't like hey we have a signed term sheet and we're going to do this deal so we got got input look and sound a lot
2: different i guess if you're
1: 500 people
2: totally right
1: yeah totally so i think that was that was one thing that um I don't know that I did it beautifully, but, uh, I tried to be transparent along the way and have the discussion. And ultimately it was up to Chris, my co-founder and myself of like, are we going to do the deal or not? Um, but, uh, I think we tried to give the context and how we were thinking about it, how we saw the opportunity, how we saw it as where we saw the upside. And I think, yeah, we had, people were, were like excited about doing it at the point of when we signed the deal.
2: Now, how hard is it to suddenly go from being the boss to having a boss? It's very oh, it's hard. That's my definitely. next question. Very hard. Can you I mean, help us understand why without without picking on anybody? You know, what are what are some of the biggest like reality checks and adjustments? Um, well, let's
0: pick on right? David. I have no problem picking on David. You want to pick on, <laughs> David? pick on David?
2: Well, but hold on to to DC's credit and Adams. Right. Adam's been there for two and a half years.
0: That's right. Yeah.
2: Right? And, you know, there's plenty of founders who leave, like, let me rephrase. There's plenty of people who have sold their company who leave at the exact moment they're kind of allowed to. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, what, is it, what is it like suddenly going from being in charge, running your own profitable business to, oh, shit, I have a boss. I have to report to somebody.
1: Yeah. Um, And just for some context, like I haven't been in that situation in a very long time. Um, And very little percentage of my career was that way. Um, So what were the shifts? Um, I don't know, there's just there's a lot of ego that you have to come to terms with. And like, how much of my identity was tied to being founder CEO, you know, and like, even though it was a tiny company, and like, I made jokes to myself about I'm CEO of five people, it's kind of like, well, what does that matter? But uh, there's still a lot of identity wrapped up in that. So I think that just like basically coming to terms with that a little bit of like, okay, I'm not going to call all the shots. I'm not going to be able to do everything exactly my way. Um, And, you know, I'm like a very structured kind of person who needs everything a certain way on my desk and like all these, I'm weird in that way. And, uh, you know, I just had to come to terms with that basic, um, I guess, idea that like, I don't get to call the shots and do everything my way. Um, which has, I think, been healthy. Um, I, it's not, I don't know that it's that, like, complex beyond that. It, once once you're over able to just no. come to terms with your ego and say, hey, I want to be part of learning from other people and see how they do it, then, uh, then I think you can get in the right mindset of, like, I'm here to help as much as I can and bring my strengths and learn from the people around me. And that's really what the opportunity was.
2: Do you, do you agree all the way with that, Richard? Because I've only been... I've only not had a boss for a little over a year and Adam didn't have a boss for like a dozen plus years. You haven't had a boss for almost a decade. How would you, could you go back and have a boss now, Richard?
0: Well, I will answer the question, but Scott, what do you think my answer is? Cause you know me.
2: I, I, I think there's no way in hell you could have a boss.
0: <laughs> exactly. You're the closest <laughs> thing I could have to a boss. Um, but I'm also, look, I'm also at a different stage in my life, right? Like I'm, you know, a little older than Scott, I've got two kids, I've got, you know, um, mortgages and those kinds of things. And so I look at the salaries that are out there. And I'm like, Oh, I could go do that. But I also get all this ridiculous time off, like I can take as much time off as I want. I work hard, right. But it also allows me to take more time off. So um, and that's important to me, like mental health is important to me. Um, and so for me, it'd be very hard to go back and work for somebody else really, really hard. Whereas I'll answer for Scott. Uh, Scott's always negotiating between Nike and Reebok, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's that athlete, right? I came up with that analogy today in, in the interview process, um, but he, like he'll, he could sit back and go, Oh, I could sit back and do this if the numbers make sense right now he's I won't give it away, but he's approaching a point where I don't think he would want to do that because he'll have enough FU money. But um, Scott, is that, is that accurate? Or is it like, no, I go, I go back easy for the right number.
2: No, that's, that's definitely accurate. I, I love this Nike Reebok analogy. It it makes me seem a little more, uh, I don't know the right word. <laughs> that's,
0: but isn't that what we all are, right? Like we're all, and, and we, we often get so caught up in our emotions of it. It's like, well, wait a minute but there's somebody else out there. There's another company, you know, there was another company. Yeah. I'm sure Adam, you could have gone to to see if they wanted interest. I don't know that you did, but it's possible. And, and you decided that I'm going to go with, you know, the Nike or the Reebok that, that drift is. So, and there's, and there's, you know, it just sort of, and typically it comes down to numbers, at least in my opinion. So, but, yeah,
1: but maybe, I, I, don't, know. I, I don't, don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it does. Yeah. For I'll me, it didn't come down to numbers so much. I talk think, about that, Adam. If, yeah. you,
2: if you had, if you had Nike and, and Reebok, and it, it it doesn't necessarily come down to numbers for somebody like you. You I mean you talked about earlier how key, you know, the things that you're motivated by are not necessarily the same as as others, and the cultural kind of alignment was was a big deal. What what are what are the other determining factors?
1: Yeah, so I think time horizon is a big variable here. Um, like Rich, what you're saying. It's like, what, what horizon are you playing the game in? And for me, I'm, I'm trying to play it on an infinite time horizon. And so the way I looked at it is I probably won't work at drift forever. Right? I probably won't work for somebody else forever. It might not be the last time that I have a boss and it might be right. But what I saw was an opportunity to learn from others and go to a larger company where I could see a different stage of growth. And there was probably lessons that I could get from this that I wouldn't get by continuing to grow Siftrock the way that I was, even though we had a great business. And I think we could have run it for 20 years. I, I think that, you know, ultimately I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be running a business. I love the I love setting the, the brand and the, building the culture. And those are things that I love to be able to do and design from the get-go and and try to scale them. But I guess I just thought of this as like, I can do this for some amount of time. I don't know how much and I'll probably get a lot that will help me that I couldn't get from doing what I was doing. So that was the way that I approached it.
2: Yeah, that's it's interesting. I mean, it makes me think on some level, this is like a high paying internship in a way for you, like you're learning in a way how to be a way better entrepreneur. So if and when you go start something else again, because I think that that's in your blood a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Like, how much better will you be because of the experience and things that you've been through, uh, you know, with, with with Drift? And then, you know, I know you've been in Seattle a really long time and there's a, a scene there. The scene is, you know, getting stronger with outreach. And, you know, when that liquidates, there's going to be spillage o- over there. Like... Do you think about that as like part of Adam's kind of journey and career arc and legacy, like contributing to the startup ecosystem in the greater Seattle area at all?
1: I do. I do care about that. Yeah, I do. I do think locally in that that way. Um, I started a podcast this year that's all interviewing local leaders, founders, investors. Give it a plug. Um, what
0: is it? What's it called?
1: It's called Built in Seattle with Adam Schoenfeld. Um And yeah, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I've interviewed Manny, like you have here, you know, you talked about outreach, we have interviewed $4 billion CEOs and a bunch of the top investors. And I think, yeah, I do care about that, that community. And it's one of the most rewarding things I've had happen in my career is people that I hired and maybe took a chance on that have then gone to other startups and had a big role or had a big impact or had a big outcome. Like those are really rewarding things to see happen.
0: What are you seeing? And I don't know if you can, based on you know, but what are you seeing that might be different in the Seattle startup community as opposed to Bay Area, Boston, even where Drift's coming from, or or Austin where Scott is? Can you can you put a finger on? Well, here are some differences.
1: Yeah, I think we're we we I think we have a little bit more humility than the Bay Area, I guess. Uh, you know, it's just a yeah. little bit more low key. Shocker. It, I mean, it's a little bit more low-key in the Northwest, though it is getting more homogenous in terms of tech and like with Amazon and Google Cloud and Facebook. I mean, you have so many just big, uh, not only HQs, but satellite offices. So it's gotten to be more, like more and more tech-centric um, versus what it was maybe a decade ago. Um, you, you don't see as many kind of uh, flashy B2C companies built in Seattle. You see B2C, but they're mostly ones that make money earlier on, like, you know, real estate or, um, things that are more transactional and you can like monetize. Um, and like we have a lot of great B2B tech. Uh, I mean, obviously Tableau for 15 billion was like a big, huge deal to have come out of Seattle. And then like, you you know, with like outreach and high spot and so many others that have come up Auth zero and remotely. So, um, I know that would that would be the main the main difference.
0: Is there a difference between in your mind? Is there a difference between Portland and Seattle? Is there a competition between those two (laughs) startup communities or, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to pick fights. I'm just like, I don't know. To your point, I'm in the Bay Area. That's in Austin. I just don't have a couple of clients up there, but I don't spend a ton of time up there.
1: I don't feel like there's competition. I feel like Seattle and Portland feel like kind of are part of the same team in some ways, but like Seattle has Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and Boeing. Like we have some pretty big anchor companies that I don't, you don't have as many in Portland. So I think it's, it just, feels a little smaller and a little newer and maybe they have better food. Um, But that's uh, I think we feel like more like we're kind of together in it against the bigger markets.
2: Adam's being very humble right now.
1: (laughs) I know.
2: I know. I know, I know people from both those markets and like most people will be like appalled that Richard, you tried to say Portland
1: is anywhere near on the same level as. (laughs) Well, the numbers say that. It's not on the same scale, but I think like GeekWire covers the Pacific Northwest, right, for instance. And so they kind of group Portland with Seattle. And if you look at some of the investors here, a lot of them do the we do the region we do you know seattle boise portland i mean and like 90% of their deals are in seattle but they kind of try to be a regional player in some regard around those the three states Got it. how i don't
0: i don't know anything about boise how is that coming as a startup community
1: I don't know a ton about it. I know there's a little bit of activity there. And I, what I've seen in some of the real estate data is people are, a lot of people are moving there, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people from the West. I always, coast I always
0: said I'd move there if, it, if it, you know, when I was living in Denver, I had said if, if Boise had a professional sports team, any single <laughs> professional sports team, it'd be, it would be a game changer for that town. I don't know that they want it, but um, they would totally change that city in, in terms of attracting more people. I think. What, um, we sort of get into to that end. And so as, as we do that, we're going to you know, obviously thank our sponsors of lead four, one, one gong and vidyard. Um, but what can we do for you? What, what kind of questions do you have for us about business life, whatever it is you want?
1: Um, what can you do for me? How should I identify myself in terms of a uh, seller? I want to, I want to go back to that one. I find that interesting.
2: Um, Well, I mean, I I think that as you alluded to and said, like everybody is selling something, you know, or has sold something kind of all the time. I I think that you should say that you have, you are a seller, you've been selling ideas and companies and products, and then you've been able to take what you've learned from those experiences and turn them into products, right? and and you're working on the strategy of selling new products all all the time so you're birthing little tiny startups inside of Drift. like that's the that's finding a a message that that works and, and and crafting a story around it and bringing folks into it and getting behind it to getting them to agree that's that's all
1: that's all salesmanship Mm, salesmanship. Maybe. maybe that's the word. Maybe.
0: Yeah. I, w- I want to ask a question. What, I mean, cause you've been doing it a long time. What makes you think you're not in sales?
1: Just simply that I don't have, I'm not, I don't sit in the function and never have, but I guess you can say you the CEO on the, is in the, the
2: job title and the quota yeah. and the, I don't crank
1: a hundred calls a day. Right. A- I'm being very pedantic about the, the word choice. It's you know so my uh, all my family like would probably identify themselves as being in sales. My dad has a furniture store here in town. My grandpa was in the furniture business. My great grandpa was in the furniture business, and like they would just be oh, like, "Yeah, I sell sofas." I mean, <laughs> and uh, actually, my great grandpa w- wrote a book called "We Sell to Live," it's just like a little book with kind of his sales philosophy, which I've read multiple cool. times. It's it's really fun. Um,
0: but um, but I, I want to come. But is there a resistance of well, I don't want to be in sales because my father and grandfather and great-grandfather were in sales.
1: No, not at all. I, I, I like respect. Like I, I consider myself a student of the game. I just, I don't know that I've earned the right to call myself that.
0: Dude, you just sold if, your company for millions of dollars. I know, but you say that, <laughs> but like,
1: I don't like when I think of the AEs and the people who are on the front lines actually like selling with a quota and the, the day-to-day of what that life is like, that doesn't look like my life, how my life was. Well, here's the thing.
2: There, there's, there's a very quick fix to this. If you want to earn your stripes? Just get on the phone for a month or a quarter yeah. and just do, do the job and, and you'll, you'll get better at it. Number one, you'll understand the pain and frustration and successes of a seller. It'll help you learn more about your prospects and, and, and buyers and all that kind of thing. Be a good fun, uh, fun little experiment.
0: But you have to. You also have to adjust your compensation. Like we got to make it. Got to make incentive. you hungry, right? Got to
1: be all incentive. It's going to go it, up, but it's all going it, to be uh, contingent. When David <laughs>
0: listens to this, he's going to pull you into the office and say, "We're reorging we're you. We're cutting your yeah. base
1: and giving you this huge uh, quota." Right. Yeah. Your OTE
0: will be way bigger, though. Don't worry. Your OT
1: OTE will, be, will be a lot bigger. Yeah. Right. I, believe me. I know how that works. <laughs> so uh,
2: thanks so much for joining us, Adam. It's been it's been fun, and uh, wish you all the best success congratulations on you know selling sift rock and and drifts trajectory and everything and uh if you don't follow adam on uh, on linkedin you should he writes a lot of good content i enjoy it and uh
1: thanks for spending some time with us man yeah thanks for having me and thanks for all you guys do for the community what, i love all your content
0: thank you what what's the name of the podcast again just one more time for the seattle
1: folk built in Seattle with Adam Schoenfeld and relevant even if you're not in Seattle. I'm just highlighting the great people and companies that are uh, headquartered here. I think it's awesome.
0: All right, man. Thanks, Adam. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks, you guys.